It is great to be with you this morning. Um, I ask you to open up your, your, uh, your Bibles to Matthew 11, please. Mm. Not Matthew 11. I think Luke 11 is where we're going to start. If you want to open up your Bibles <clears throat> to Luke 18. Okay, I'll get my stuff together, I promise. It'll happen. Luke 18. We'll read from Luke 18, 35 through 43, um, as we begin. Um, this is kind of more of a topical, going to be all over, well, not all over the place, but different places today, this morning, so I hope you bear with me um, as, we, as we look at the scriptures together. All right. All right, so Luke 18, verse 35, we'll read to 43. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let us pray. Oh, God in heaven, um, how much we're in need of you this morning um, to do anything profitable here, to do anything good. Lord, we, we know we're in desperate need of your spirit. Um, God, and, and blessed are those who, who understand their need. Um, God, and, and, and or at least understand in part of their need. And, I know, Lord, for me to proclaim of anything of truth value, of, of any power, it must be grounded in your word, and it must be enlivened by your spirit. And so, God, I ask for his help. I ask for your help. I ask, God, that you'd give me focus and clarity, and, Lord, that I would proclaim something that would be useful for the hearers before me, the faithful, those who are saints, uh, those who have, who have been called out of darkness into light, it would be useful for them to hear it and to respond in faith to Jesus. And Lord, even in that, we know, Lord, that they're desperately in need of Christ as well. So what a blessed state that we are in, needy of, for Jesus. Lord, I know no other position to be but needy for the Lord. So let us celebrate that now as we rely upon you in the hearing and receiving and the proclaiming of your glorious word that is used as a means for our salvation. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over, um, I've been a Christian since 2008, so that's uh, like 13, 14, whatever years. And through that, um, that, that time period, I find it interesting to see, um, and I think everyone here who's in Christ who have has been pursuing the Word of God, pursuing knowing who God is, who He is, and who we are in light, and what we are to do in response to that. I think it's very interesting and fascinating to see the, the missteps that we've all taken in our theology, in our understanding of God, 
um, and perhaps some overreactions to certain falsehoods that we heard, um, perhaps as you first came to Christ or before you came to Christ, being in churches that weren't maybe as healthy or preaching as well, the word, um, certain things that you, you heard that were false, and so a, an overreaction to those falsehoods. And uh, I think our Christian lives can be filled with, again, growing and understanding who God is and and, 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 and having a more developed understanding of God and a clear understanding. And, of course, with that can come missteps and overreactions. And, and one that I want to highlight before we get into the, the main topic this morning is understanding that we, we ought to stop treating God as a genie. Um, this, this understanding that we, we at, you know, our, our prayers can be just filled with asking for things from God over and over and over again. Um, that, that, that's all we do. And then the, the, the overreaction would be, well, the rightful thing to say, stop treating God as a genie. I'm all for that. But then stop asking so much from God all the time. And I, I remember being that mindset because before I came to Christ, in which I had a false Christianity, I remember I always did my religious prayers before I went to bed, and I hated it because I just wanted to go to sleep. But I had to do my religious activity there. And it would be filled with just asking for things constantly. And so I remember reacting to that, be like, I ought to just be marveling at who God is and just praising him for who he is. Right. But overreaction would be to say and just stop asking so much from him. Of course, we might not say that, but we might be thinking it or even practicing that. But one thing that has been striking me as I look at Scripture lately one thing that's been striking me as I look at Scripture is how much God l- takes pleasure in our petitions, in, in, in us asking things of him. He, he takes so much pleasure from that. In fact, him as a genie, but we should always be saying, oh, God, petitions forth going to him. And even if, you know, we won't turn there, but the Lord's Prayer uh, right now and catechism time. Um, one of my boys is, is really in that por- portion right now. And I'm just by the fact that it, it begins with our father, right? And then it's petition, 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 constant petitions, right? Jesus instructing us how to pray, addresses God as father, and then it's filled with petitions. Um, surely if he's training us to pray that way, it is a good thing for us to ask things of our, and notice I highlighted now, I think it's the third time, Father. Jesus highlights Father. Why is that so significant? Because God is our Father. And you think of a good Father, He cares for us. He wants to give us good things, as we'll see later on. He, he loves how much parents in general, but fathers in, in, in specific with this, how much when you hear your child needs something, it is a pleasure of yours to respond given them the needs that they have. Um, We are to call God our Father because he loves us so much and he wants to give us good things. He delights to hear our petitions and he delights to grant our petitions. Did you know that God is pleased when you ask him for things? Think about that. In my my impatience um, and and, and everything, whenever I can't imagine my wife who's always home, but when I'm home and the, the kids are asking for constant things, right? Um, it, it, can, it can wear me out, right? But our God, he absolutely loves to hear your petitions. He, it, it's, pl- it's pleasurable to him. Did you know that God oftentimes requires your many petitions as a means to give you those good things? You, you hear what I said that? You know that God oftentimes requires your many petitions as a means to give you good things. He requires it. Not only does he delight in it, he takes pleasure in it, but he requires your many petitions to give you good things. 
And so you are to so desire the good that God provides that you are to ask with bold faith. Did you know that? You are to so desire, you are to see the, your God the Father as, as, as all good, who gives all good to his children. You are to so desire the good that he has that you are to ask with bold faith, with bold faith. Being needy and asking things from God is to, to have joyful worship. Again, being needy and asking good things from God, your Father, is to have joyful worship. Notice, going back to these verses that we read with this blind man, notice two big things there, or two interesting things there. Notice the first one in Luke 18, 35 through 43. Did you notice his insistence? Did you notice the blind man's insistence? He's, 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 he's blind, begging on the road. He hears a commotion. He says, what is that? And he hears Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. And he cries out. He cries out. Why? Because he's heard the reports of this Jesus of Nazareth that he is a good, that he's a good Messiah. He's a, he, he's, he's, I don't want to say good, per, well, he's a good person who is giving good things or he's healing people. He hears the report. He knows he's going by, and he screams out, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. And notice this insistence, because the people in front were saying, shut up, be quiet. You're disturbing the peace. And he doesn't, no, he screams out all the louder. His insistence that this Jesus who does good things for people, I need his help, and I am insistent, I am screaming out to him. What's the second thing you notice about this blind man? What's the second thing to be noticed here? is that Jesus asks him what he would like to be done for him. Ever notice that's kind of strange, that Jesus says, well, who would you like me to do for you? It's like, well, I wonder. <laughs> you know, because you got to imagine he was brought to Jesus. Why? Because there's a huge, you know, imagine Jesus is in the middle of a huge crowd, and this blind man's not going to be able to, like, excuse me, I'm coming through, I need to get to Jesus. He wouldn't be able to do that. He would need help to get there. It would be quite painfully obvious this man's blind. Jesus, being truly God, did not need help knowing I just don't know what you would like me to do for you. Now, why did he ask that? Beloved, it was for the benefit of the blind man to what? To to say, this is what I'm needful. I I need this from you. And in faith, ask Jesus. His question of what would you like me to do for you, was it for the benefit of the blind man so the blind man would have the worshipful experience of being needy and asking Jesus for the good that he desired? This is a good thing. This is our worship. I think we see, and we're going to go through a few of this, and then we're really going to hunker down with the good things we ought to be asking. But let's go back. We, we read it. Let's go back to Genesis 32. We see this in play with Jacob, I think in a very interesting way as well. Genesis 32, 22 through 32. Genesis 32, 22 through 32. The same night, Jacob arose and took his two wives and two servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Japheth. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his socket, and Jacob's hip was out of joint as he continued to wrestle with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has finally broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with him and with God and with men and prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask for my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I find it fascinating there. I remember being a new Christian and, and, and reading through this and be like, uh, be like, okay, that's some form of God that he's wrestling with, and somehow he wins, right? Uh, in fact, this, this form of God, as now we can understand, this is the Son of God taking on some kind of human form before taking on flesh in Jesus. We, we see that he, 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 he has to tell him to stop, right? And Jacob prevails over him. I remember that being very confusing, because even then I had enough theology in my brain to know that God is all-powerful, and no man can, can beat him in a wrestling match. And I think it's very, it's very interesting if you look again at verse, what is it, 30, uh, 30. Remember what he says. He says at the end of it, for I've seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob did not have the mindset of, oh, I just am more powerful, more powerful than God in that wrestling match. Jacob realized that I just went toe to toe with God and he didn't smite me down. And he was thankful for that. So Jacob wasn't leaving that being like, I got the better of him. And so the question is, okay, what is it all about that he's wrestling with them and he actually wins the wrestling match? I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's the same thing of how Jesus asked this man to locate his faith or to locate his need. It's the same thing. The wrestling match and letting Jacob win is, is for Jacob's benefit for him to wrestle all night for the promises of God. You know, just like Jesus didn't need to know from the blind man what he wanted, God certainly could just knock Jacob down in that wrestling match, but for the benefit of Jacob, he allows him to wrestle all night to contend for the promises, contend for the blessings, and win out and grab hold of the blessing. You see, this is for the benefit of Jacob to show that he must struggle, he must wrestle, he must not accept no as an answer to grab hold of the promises, of the blessings, of the good things God has promise to Jacob. You see, because secondly, why was Jacob in such a desperate need to wrestle with God all night? What's, what's the context here? If you see the context here, where it's in the middle of, you can see that that was quite the wrestling match that night. You see, uh, Jacob, the next day, was having to deal with Esau, his brother, coming to meet him, which is fine and dandy, until you realize that he's coming with 400 men, and then until you realize that the last time Jacob spoke or was around Esau, it wasn't on the best of terms. You remember in 27, look at Genesis 27, 41. After Jacob tricked him into getting that uh, blessing. Look at Genesis 27, 41. You remember Esau, you remember he tricks his uh, Isaac, his, his dad, had given him the blessing instead of Esau, so he, he, so to speak, steals his blessing. And in 2741, you remember what? doesn't find it funny. He's actually pretty bitter about it. And in 2741, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. That's kind of the last kind of relationship status that was going on before Jacob got out of Dodge and went to Laban to, get, to find a wife, right? And so you can imagine he's then leaving Laban to go back to home, 
and he hears that Esau's coming, who just, you know, he said that, and he also has 400 men. That happens to be enough to kill his family, himself, all the cattle, everything, right? So you can imagine Jacob is concerned. You can imagine that Jacob would be very, very nervous. And yet, so you got that going on on, on that side, but there's something counterbalancing that. What is that? That Jacob is a receiver of the many promises of God. So you have on this side here, the, the promises of God being nothing and it all being done with being killed by his brother who hates him. But on the other side, there's these promises that he's heard. There's promises that he's received. He knows that God has given. Let's take a second just to give that counterweight um, its, its proper due. Look at some of these promises. Look at uh, Genesis 25, 23 with me. Look at 25, 23. When at their birth, right, at the twins' birth, Esau and Jacob at their birth, remember what was said there? Excuse me. At 25, 23, um, the Lord said to their mother, Rebecca, who was, had these twins in her womb, and they were going crazy in there. She didn't know what was going on. And the Lord told her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger, right? And, and Jacob would have probably heard that later on from his mother and see that there was a promise that the older would serve the younger, not the older kill the younger. Right? So you have Esau coming 400 men, powerful enough to destroy me. Other side, there's these promise. There's another promise after that. Look at chapter 27, verse 28 and 29. 27, verse um, 28 and 29. The blessing he stole after, after, when he stole the blessing or he tricked to get the blessing. What was that blessing, that, part of that blessing that he received? Well, look at chapter 27, 20, uh, verses 28 and 29. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's son bow down to you. Curse be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Again, there's that counterweight promise. Esau wants to murder me. Promise is done, but yet there's these promises that I've heard that the opposite shall happen. Again, look at chapter 28, verses 13 and 15. As he ran away from Esau to uh, to go to Laban to find a wife. Chapter 28, verses 13 through 15. And behold, the Lord stood above the ladder and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you whatever you go and bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Again, there's that promise. Return. This land be yours. You'll be blessed in it. And 31, just for the sake of seeing it all. Look at chapter 31, verse 3, right before he flees Laban to return home. Look at verse, chapter 31, verse 3. The, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So he's returning, and he hears the reports. Esau's coming, 400 men, and he is terrified like any of us would be, but yet he has these promises ringing around or going around in his head. In fact, you see this one more in prayer uh, that night. 
the 32, 9 through 12, before he wrestles with God for those promises, look at his prayer, chapter 32, 9 through 12. And Jacob said, O God and my father Abraham and God and my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff did I cross this Jordan to Laban. And now I have come, become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. There's what's going on in his head. There's what's going on in his heart. And that's what he takes with him that night as he wrestles with God for that same promise. Notice Jacob isn't tiptoeing to that promise. He's not saying, well, we'll see if it happens. But he says, this promise has been given to me. I will grab hold of it with all that's within me, even wrestling with God, even with a hurt hip as I do so. Notice his tenacity. Notice his his forwardness. He shows his faith in wrestling all night. But contrast that with Esau. Again, we've already read that in the text uh, earlier. But notice that contrast with Esau in chapter 25, verse 29. Remember that famous story of him and his birthright. Chapter 25, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. What, what use is birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And there's this commentary by Moses. Thus Esau, what? Didn't wrestle God for any promises. Didn't tenaciously grab hold of it and said, I'm not going to accept no for an answer. No, instead he despised blessing because he was never meant to predestined to have it anyways, as we can, that's a whole other sermon. But nevertheless, we, we see there that great contrast, isn't it? Uh, and, and some people argue that at this time there might have been a, a, a famine in the land to where he literally was perhaps about to die. Um, in which the answer would be, I would much rather have all the blessings of God and even starve to death than to give it up for the sake of having my stomach filled. But another answer is that he simply was very hungry and he was willing to just for fleshly gain, right, fleshly pleasure for the moment, to give up the blessing, the promise of God for the sake of those things. What a contrast that is indeed, right? Uh, as Christians, we know we are to turn away from fleshly pleasure and if, you know, because it means that we're turning to... Um, if we're turning to the fleshly pleasure, we're turning away from the promises of God, right? The promises of God are so much to us that we turn away from any fleshly pleasure for the sake of the promise of God. Esau stands as a great contrast to that. And as we look at the wrestling, right? As we look at the, the, the wrestling all night to, to, to remind himself and to gain hold, to grab hold of the promise that he has received in God, how often when we are in a very stressful time of our life in which we're up at night because we can't stop thinking about it, how much are we wrestling with God for the promises that we know that we receive from God as we'll look at later? We know what God has said in his word and we are to grab hold of that in prayer and say, God, I know what you have promised and you're good and you're eternal. And yet, how often do we forfeit that for the sake of stewing in our stress and our affliction 
instead of reminding ourselves and grabbing hold of the promises and not accepting no as an answer in light of our great stress. And so with that kind of line of thought as an introductory, what is the promise? What is our promise? What's the promise that we have in the word that we can just as much grab hold of tenaciously and not accept no as an, as an answer? What is our promise that we are to ask for with such worshipful, bold faith as the blind man, as Jacob? Well, it's not physical healing. The promises that we have that we grab hold of with, with full assurance and, and knowing, with boldness, we'll receive it. It's not physical healing. And it's not physical protection from enemies, nor physical offspring. It's not those physical things, the promises that we have that we know are sure in Jesus. It's better than that. And again, those stresses that I just talked about that keeps us up at night, it's typically involved in the physical realm, right? There's physical things, right? Money, uh, safety, whatever. Last night, the wind was howling. My big farmhouse, it, it, it was like, it, like Wizard of Oz. It was going to just like, jump out off the ground, right? These physical things are, that batter our brains and minds and hearts, and we know that the promises that we have in Jesus aren't the physical things. They're better. They're better. If, if that was better, he would promise that. But God is too good not to give us the best of things. No. The promises that we have, that we grab hold of, it's not physical healing. It's not physical protection from enemies. It's not physical offsprings and yada, yada, yada. Whatever that may look like in your particular life, it's better than that. And the fulfillment of all the promises of Scripture are found in what we have before us. That is, a fellow heir with Christ and his kingdom, he is established with his blood and resurrection. That is a promise that we have. To be a fellow heir with the Son of God and his kingdom. That is our promise that we are to grab hold of and say, I'm not going to let anything get in the way of that. No, what good is physical health and prosperity if used as a lawbreaker before God? What good is it to have all the things in the world, whatever it may be that we stress out that we don't have, what good is it to have such a thing if we use it as a lawbreaker, fit for disapproval and wrath before our God? But what a blessed promise that you can walk this life, no matter the circumstances, with peace and unity between you and God. That's the promise that we have at our disposal. The person who has been awakened to his sin and need for Christ does not tiptoe to the kingdom. The person who, who understands the law and his, his brokenness before it the fact that he cannot walk righteously before God in this world, the one who has been awakened to these things, they do not tiptoe, but rather they scream out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And when he asks, what would you like me to do for you, child? You say, Lord, give me your righteousness, is what we cry out. Give me your righteousness. It was in that vein of thought that I want to look at, go to Matthew Eleven, twelve, And I think that vein, that, that line of thought there can then explain this passage. Another tricky passage. I remember coming to it and being like, what is going on here exactly? And I think we're set up now to understand this passage beautifully. Look at Matthew eleven twelve. Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent 
take it by force. Again, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. I know it can be kind of weird because you think the violence that's, that's happening to it, it seems like those are the bad guys is typically how we consider violence being done. But here, Jesus isn't referring to the bad guys are the violent ones. No, he, he's saying simply that those who come into the kingdom are the ones who say, give me it now. I want it. I'm not going to accept anything else. They do it violently. They do it with, ten, with a tenacious spirit. They see their needs so much outside of the kingdom that they say, I need to grab hold of these promises and I need to do it now and nothing can get in my way. In fact, one might say they do it violently. They do it violently. Uh, Luke 16, 16 says it this way. The law and the prophets were until John... Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. In other words, we don't tiptoe to it. Whenever we see our need and we see Jesus has promised to fulfill all, every one of our needs in his kingdom, we don't tiptoe to the gate. But rather, we take it by force. We say, nothing's going to get in my way, for the promises are found there. John the Baptist, what did he preach? Repentance. He preached the law. He preached, you are a sinner, you are a snake, you are broken, you are dead, you are not right with God, you need the kingdom, you need to repent, and you need the kingdom. And those who God was, was, choosing, was choosing out of that, they understood that, and they said, give me the kingdom, give me the kingdom. And they repented with force, they repented with violence, so to speak, they grabbed hold of the promises, indeed, just like we see from Jacob, just like we see from the blind men and the promises given to them, all the promises of the Christian, they grab hold with everything. I think um, John Bunyan, I'm going to read just a few passages on this account. Uh, he, he has this in mind as he writes um, this part of uh, the Pilgrim's Progress in which Christian is at the interpreter's house, and the interpreter is kind of interpreting, interpreting things for him to, to give him understanding. And he's seeing these visions, so to speak, or he's seeing these, these images laid out before him. And I think the way John Bunyan describes this here is very good. It's worthy for us to, to read. In my dream, I watched as the interpreter took Christian, the, the pilgrim, by the hand again and led him into a pleasant place where a beautiful, stately palace stood. Now, Christian was greatly delighted when he saw the striking building. Now, he's seeing the kingdom of God, right? But he was even more impressed at the, at the sight of the people walking around the top of the palace dressed in gold. They're dressed in Christ's righteousness. Christian looked wide-eyed at the interpreter and asked, may we go inside there? Without a word, the interpreter led him closer to the door of the palace. A big group of men stood in a knot in a jumble in front of the entrance of the kingdom. And they all wanted to enter, but they seemed to lack the courage to do so. They were tiptoeing. A little distance from the door, a man sat at a side table equipped with a book, his ink bottle, and a quill. His role was to take the names of those who were determined to enter the palace. Christian's attention then drifted to men posted at the doorway dressed in armor. They stood blocking the way, and their clear intent was to prevent those who wanted to enter from getting in, even if it required violence. Christian pondered the meaning of all this. But finally, when all the men cowered back away from the door for fear of the armed men, Christian spotted one man who appeared very resolute. He strolled up to the man who sat at the table and said, Sir, write down my name. And as soon as the name was recorded in the book, the man drew his sword, 
put a helmet on his head, and rushed toward the palace door where the armed men opposed him with deadly force. But the valiant man was not discouraged at all and fought fiercely, cutting and hacking his opponents. He both received and administered many wounds to those who attempted to keep him out. Nevertheless, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward into the palace. Those inside cried out with a joyous voice, even those who walked upon the top of the palace. They said, come in, come in, eternal glory you shall win. So he went in and was clothed with garments similar to those worn by the citizens of the palace. Christian smiled and said, I think I certainly know the meaning of this. Now let me go forward. I like how Christian said, okay, I'm ready to go into the gate myself. I think it's a beautiful way to describe this ferocious nature that the Christian is to understand their need, to see the kingdom right there, to see the beauties of the righteous, right, enjoying the fruit of that kingdom, and says, I'm going to go in there. I'm not going to let any armed men stop me, for my name shall be written in that book. Being made righteous in the kingdom does not mean we then stop asking things by, of God by faith, Right? So it doesn't mean, okay, we, we, we enter now into the kingdom, we're justified, we had that robe of righteousness, and now we don't ever ask God of things. No. The life and desire of the Christian in this life is to walk according to the justified status we have received upon entering the kingdom. You see what I mean? Is that we, we have received this justified status. You are now righteous, says our Father. You are now righteous because I see my Son as I look to you. And now as we walk in that righteousness, we say, I want my walk to now reflect what I've received, that justified status I've received. More than anything in this world, I want to reflect the fact that I have been made righteous by the Son of God. I want to in the righteousness I have received. And so our prayer life becomes dominant with petitions that God would give us the promise of sanctification. More than anything, I want to be sanctified in whatever circumstances I am. Oh God, give me the promises of sanctification. Give me the promises of a obedient life from the heart. Surely, I desire good health. I do. I desire reasonable wealth. I don't want to be wretchedly poor where I can't take care of my family. I desire good circumstances, and I pray for that. I truly do. But more than anything, I desire to walk righteously by God's grace in whatever circumstances he desires for me. I'd rather walk righteously in suffering than unrighteously in comfort and ease. Yeah, I'd rather walk righteously in suffering than unrighteously in comfort and ease. And so being found in Christ's kingdom means we boldly ask in confident faith that he would enable us to walk righteously in this life every day of our life. And I think this is what we see, and we're going to settle here for the end of the sermon, in Luke 11. In Luke 11, if you, if you go there with me, please. In Luke 11, we see the tenacious, the forward, the boldness, of the Christian in the kingdom of Christ. Remember, again, I alluded to it earlier with the Lord's Prayer. In Luke 11, I alluded to the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus, pray like this. Our Father, the one who is very good, goodness itself, and he loves to give children, his children, good things, we pray to him. He's our Father. He's going to give us good things. 
And then these, all these petitions, asking of God of things. We are to be needy and ask our Father over and over again. But look at the, the context now surrounding it after the Lord's Prayer. Look at verse 5. Again, this is the life of the Christian in the kingdom that we get to so wonderfully enjoy. Look at verse 5 of Luke 11. And he said to them, which one of you? He's going to talk about the nature of God here in light of our petitions. Which one of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has just arrived on a journey and have nothing set before him. And he'll answer from within, stop bothering me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up anything. I'm not going to burden myself to go and get you what you need. But I tell you, Jesus says, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Impudence is like his boldness. His, this, this friend is, is not just saying, um, excuse me, can you give me some bread? It's like, I know you got bread in there. I really need it. Come, you know, let me have it so I can feed it to my friend here. And he says, no, go away. And he says, no, I'm not going away. I know you have it. Just give me it real quick, right? That's his boldness, his forwardness, and his repeatedness. He's not going to go away for anything. So Jesus says, because of that, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Fine, then I'll give it to you. And it's the same thing, right? What kind of, what is, it tell, what is Jesus telling us about our prayer life? How should it be? It shouldn't be a tiptoe to God and say, you know, and, 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 and say, you know, with a lack of faith, well, I hope you might give me these things. You are a good God. You desire to give good things to me. That's your will to do so, and I hope you might do that. That's not, a, that's not praying by faith at all. And it might seem humble. It might seem almost righteously to do that, but God actually tells you, you are to pray in bold faith because of Jesus Christ. You are not to tiptoe to it, but rather you are to say, you promised to give me good things in Jesus, and I am going to wrestle you for it now, for you have promised to give me them. He says in verse 9, he says, Can I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Notice, notice the promise there. What a really good study that you can have is look at all the promises for you, for, for the Christian, for those in the new covenant, and notice the promises that aren't like, maybe you'll get it. Perhaps highlight them and say, this is a for sure reality. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I tell you, ask, and you might receive. Right? He, he doesn't say, um, ask, and, and you, you might re- receive, or you, it might be given to you. No, he, he says it will be given to you. Or fine, and or, um, um, uh, knock, and it, will be, it might be open to you. Um, he doesn't say might or anything like that, but he says it's certainly to be done. And notice in verse 10, he says, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. Again, he doesn't say some people. Everyone. The promise is for everyone who does this in faith. And these are things that you are to, to, to meditate on, uh, to, to consider for a moment, for a while, especially in your burden and your stress as you are burdened with certain things. You are to say this is for everyone who in faith cries out to our good God for good things, and it will be done. And, and notice he, he, he kind of he attaches that, that for sure status with the nature of, 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 of God's goodness. He says in verse 11, what father among you what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, he'll give him a scorpion. Imagine your son is, is starving, right? Imagine your son is starving, and he needs to eat. He needs substance right now, and you have it. 
in your back pocket. It's there. Which parent would be like, nah? Or which parent would actually give them something that's going to harm them instead? Which parent would give them a rock? When you have the good in your back pocket, it's there, ready to give them, and they are starving, they need it, and you say, nah, I'm not going to do it. Which parent would do that? Any kind of parent that would do that, there's a level of depravity that we can't even fathom, right? We're used to depravity and around us, but there's a level of depravity that's like your mind can't even compute it, and that would be there, right? Your child's starving, he needs it, he's crying out, please give me it, and you say, nah, and he says that you being evil knows how to give good things to your children, delights you, you like doing it, it's your pleasure. How much more the God who is not evil would do such a thing for you? This is the boldness. This is the, the I'm going to go to God who is all good, who's promised all good to me, and I'm going to ask him for something, and I'm not going to stop because he delights to give me it. Now, let's put a major caveat on there. I don't really like to call it a caveat because it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Because look what he, he goes on to say, and I like how he says this in Luke. He says, again, in verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father what? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Of course, that's the context involved here. And this, as a Christian, as a born-again Christian, whose greatest delight is to look like Jesus or to receive the Spirit of justification and of sanctification, right? That's our greatest desire we're in a situation where it's like, I want Christ to be revealed here. Do you know that you are to ask him and you will receive? That you will reveal Jesus. You will glorify him. You will grow in that situation. God has promised you that. And it's not just maybe he'll do it. He's saying, I will grow you. So what kind of prayer life should we have? We should not timidly go up to God and his promises in Jesus and say, maybe you'll sanctify me here. It is the will of God for your sanctification. And he says, I will do it for you. And how comforting is that in our situations in which we're going through something that is, we're struggling to show, reveal Jesus. We're struggling to mature. But yet God says, I will do this for you. Ask and you will receive. This is a comfort for the Christian whose greatest desire is to glorify our God and enjoy him forever. So are you asking the Father for things with this boldness in Jesus Christ? Have you received that status of justification by the blood and resurrection of our Lord? And are you enjoying the fruits of the kingdom that is to walk accordingly? And whatever gets in your way, are you with imputed faith saying, God, give me the things that you have promised? Are you asking, expecting to receive, seeking, expecting to find, knocking, expecting doors to open? Could it be that, if you're not, the good that you imagine, the good that you want, is not the good that God has for you? Um, God, if, uh, this, is, this, is, this is difficult, but God desires more than anything for you to walk obediently to him. And he has enabled you through Jesus Christ. And whatever he decides to give you in this world, it's so that you can know Jesus Christ more and glorify him. And so we know that if I'm experiencing this in some way, God's goodness is being revealed in it so that I can be further sanctified and enjoy the fruits of that, the rewards of that in eternity. Are you praying with that in the back of your eyelids as you're asking the all good father for all good things? But perhaps the goodness that we have in mind are not in line with the goodness that God objectively has. 
And so with that, there is a bad rub going on there in which we are thinking, why would I ask in bold faith for this thing? To those struggling saints who are growing weary with asking for this good, truly good thing from our God and Father, we need to keep on asking. We need to keep on sinking. We need to keep on knocking. It is your worship to be so needy before the Father. I, I hope you see that it is a very blessed state to be in, to understand the deep need that is within your soul. It is a good thing to be in that place. As you see, Jesus is a great fulfiller of that need. If he is not fulfilling, there's a period at, I know, there's, there's periods in which we're like, I'm just not growing like I want to be. I'm just, I'm, I'm not, like I'm still getting irritated with my children or I'm, I'm still looking at those things on the internet that I know I shouldn't be, that kind of stuff, right? You know that you are in the perfect place of neediness in which that, in that moment, you are in confident faith to say, Jesus, it is your will to grow me in this and I know you will do it. It is mine. I will wrestle for it and do all that I need to grab hold of that. This will make you more in tune with the means of grace he has before you. This will make you a little bit more sensitive to scripture reading in your own private life. This will make you even more sensitive to the preaching of the word. Listen just a little bit more. Want to apply it to your heart a little bit more. Whenever you're grabbing hold of the promises, knowing that they're yours in Jesus, that he will make good on that as you seek him out, this will make you grab hold of what he has for you in faith. And this is your worship. For fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Oh, God in heaven, in my own life, Lord, how, how easy it is for me to get frustrated with the different shortcomings that, as I compare myself to Jesus, I see there. And Lord, instead of being relieved that I am forgiven by the blood, and instead of being so relieved and encouraged that I can in faith ask for this growth, and I know I will have it as Jesus works on me. I can get distracted. I can get frustrated. I can give up. I can be like Esau, who quickly, for the sake of uh, fleshly gain, I can sell my birthright. Oh, God in heaven, let me look to Jesus. And the people before me, Lord, I don't know exactly what's going on in their lives, but I know there's general truths here that they can grab hold of, Lord, and be encouraged that you are a God who is goodness itself. And you are a father who loves to give your children good things. And you are a God, a father, who works these good things out in our lives through the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, looking more like him. This is what you are doing. This is what you promised to do, and you shall do it. Oh, let us have the faith that this is what you're doing for us in your kindness. Let us grab hold of these promises with thanksgiving that no matter what I may be going through right now, you can and will use it for sanctification. What a promise we have in Jesus. Let us adore him and love him and praise him and worship him and, Lord, obey him, for this is our good. Thank you for the gospel of grace. May you bless our day now that we have today. In Jesus' name, amen.